0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whatever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today I will be bringing you October's final scary story. But before we get to that, let's start things off with a review on Apple Podcasts. Been Searching by I Was Here Today. I love this podcast. I've been looking for a quality show And this is it i love everything about it the background information the narrator's voices the additional sounds for effects the subject matter so excited to know that i have found this to listen to when the time is right thank you thank you i was here today for leaving such a kind review and big thanks to everyone who has left a review thus far oh and before we get started today i wanted to shout out miss knight's english class down in florida I know there are a few teachers who use this show in their classes, and I really enjoy hearing about that. So, if you're a teacher and you've used any of my stories in your class, let me know, and I'll say hi to them here on the show. Today's story is called The Body Snatcher, and it was written by Robert Louis Stevenson, and I'll get to the background on that in just a minute. But first, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. There will be no new episode of Stories of Your and Yours next week, but don't panic. I'm not going anywhere. What I'll be doing going forward is taking the show to a bi-weekly format. Now, there's a few reasons for this. Number one, the most selfish reason, is because it's just a lot easier to keep up with a recording and editing schedule when I'm working on a bi-weekly basis. But that's not the only reason. One of my intentions in going bi-weekly is to have longer seasons. Thirteen episodes in season two just felt short to me. And I think spreading them out will help me to produce more episodes per season, though I don't have a hard number for that just yet. just feel things out and see where it goes. But that's not all. This will also free me up to do more bonus content for patrons. What I'm thinking is that I'm going to do a series of bonus episodes during the season now called Simply Stories. For these bonus episodes, as the title implies, it'll just be me narrating a story. The plan is to do one of these per month, so patrons will get the regular two episodes per month, which will always be free, then a bonus Simply Stories episode, plus the bonus trivia show Spot the Lie that I do with three other podcast hosts. Plus, of course, between seasons, patrons will get the fully produced bonus content, like this past off season where I did this six-part series, The Turn of the Screw. So at the end of the day, everyone gets more stories, and patrons get even more than usual. And by the way, all the bonus content that I just mentioned will be available to patrons of all levels. So if you're interested in supporting the show and getting a bunch of bonus content on top of that, you can head over to patreon.com syypodcast. And of course, a huge thank you goes out to all of my current patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Oh, and one more note before we get started with the intro this week. I have a guest appearance on another show that I want to tell you about. I was a guest on the great Two Girls on a Bench podcast this week. If you're listening on the day this show releases, that episode dropped yesterday, but either way, it's available right now. On that show, I narrated an original short story called Billy's Inferno by Ann Fox. I had a lot of fun doing that, and if you're interested in writing or just hearing stories from two longtime friends, you should be listening to Trisha and Shauna over at Two Girls on a Bench already. They're both awesome, and the show is a lot of fun, too. I've heard from a few of you that you'd like a content warning before I send you to other shows, and I'm happy to provide you that as I do keep this show clean. There is some salty language over there on the bench, just so you're aware of that. But they also discuss salty snacks and sweet snacks, and all kinds of snacks, actually, in addition to talking about their writing and how they procrastinate said writing. But don't just take it from me. Here are Trisha and Shauna to tell you more. Hi, this is Two Girls on a Bench, the podcast. So we're two writers who tend to procrastinate just a bit. We like to snack. We like to talk. We don't have time to write, but we have time to do this podcast. We certainly do. Join us on the bench. Listen in. At number two, Girls on a Bench. So, now that you know about what's going on with me, let's move on to this week's story. As I mentioned a minute ago, we'll be featuring The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson was born in November of 1850 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Stevenson's father, uncles, and grandfather were all engineers who designed lighthouses. This, of course, was to be Robert's profession as well, but as he went to school for engineering and would accompany his father to inspect lighthouses and get a feel for the family profession, he was more apt to use lighthouses as an inspiration for poetry than to study their inner workings. In a somewhat surprising development, Stevenson's mother was reported to have said that her husband was not opposed to their son's desire to be a writer. In fact, he supported it, just as long as Robert would go to school to be a lawyer as a fallback option. At the point when Robert decided to embark on a writing career, it certainly wasn't a surprise to his parents that this would be his chosen profession. In fact, Robert's father had enjoyed writing when he was younger, until his own father had told him to give up on that nonsense. Stevenson did eventually join the Scottish Bar, but he never actually practiced law. After finishing law school, Stevenson became a very frequent traveler. He visited London and France often, and it was in France where he would meet the woman who would eventually become his wife. She was an American named Fanny Vandegrift Osborne, who was traveling to France with her three children while she was separated from her husband. They met in France in 1875, and she returned to San Francisco in 1878, with Stevenson staying in Europe. Against the advice of his friends, he went to meet her in the States in 1879 and arrived in California in very poor health. Now, this was a theme throughout Stevenson's life. He traveled often but was rarely in good health, and this being the longest trip he had taken, and having done it by himself, it took a pretty big toll on him. Some local ranchers in Monterey nursed him back to health, but he took ill again that winter. By that time, Fanny had divorced the husband from whom she was separated and was able to come to his bedside to help him recover. For the next several years they traveled together trying to settle in a place that would be suitable for robert's health they went from england to scotland to france and eventually back into the u.s where they spent the winter of 1887 in the adirondack mountains in new york the couple planned to take a trip in the following summer to the south pacific and they left from san francisco in the summer of 1888 they would essentially remain in that area for the rest of robert's life they traveled the south pacific for three years bouncing from place to place The climate restored robert's health and the family eventually settled in samoa in 1890 where they would live until stevenson's death due to a likely brain hemorrhage in 1894 he was only 44 years old at the time stevenson was not as prolific a writer as many of the authors i featured here but he has some of the most well-known works chief among them are his first major success the novel treasure island which was published in 1893 This novel is hugely influential in the way popular culture has seen pirates since the time of its publication. The idea of treasure maps marked with an X, peg-legged pirates with parrots on their shoulders, and other pirate stereotypes originated in Treasure Island. The other most well-known of Stevenson's stories is The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was published in 1885. Both of those works, of course, are very well-known and have been adapted countless times since their publication in the late 19th century. Today's story, The Body Snatcher, was published in the Pall Mall Christmas Extra in 1884. The Pall Mall Gazette, for its part, was an evening newspaper in London that ran from February of 1865 until it was absorbed into the Evening Standard in 1923. The Body Snatcher was actually written in 1881, three years before it appeared in the Pall Mall Gazette, but it wasn't published right away. Uh, The reason for the delay is not clear, but there's an editor's note at the beginning of the story, and it gives at least a storyline reason that the story hadn't been published until 1884. It's a short note, so I'll just read it here. The Body Snatcher was written in June 1881 at Kinnaird Cottage, Pitlacree, and was originally intended to form one of a series of Tales of Terror, or as Stevenson called them, Crawlers, which had been planned in collaboration with Mrs. Stevenson and were brought out under the title The Black Man and Other Tales. Of these stories, Thrawn, Janet, and the Merry Men were published in the Cornhill magazine, but The Body Snatcher was laid aside in a justifiable disgust, the tale being horrid. Subsequently, in 1884, being asked to contribute a story to the Paul Mall Christmas number, he offered Markheim, but as it fell short of the space reserved for it, Stevenson sent The Body Snatcher, which, in a letter to the editor, he describes as Blood-curdling enough and ugly enough to chill the blood of a grenadier. Unique and gruesome methods of advertising were used by the Pall Mall, and much attention was drawn to the story. In London, posters were displayed of so ghoulish and startling a character that they were suppressed by the police. Now I don't know how much of that is actually true, and I don't know actually where that editor's note came from. But it is true that Stevenson originally intended to submit Markheim to the Pall Mall instead of the Body Snatcher, but it was too short, and Stevenson was too ill at the time to write more, so he used a story he already had in the can, so to speak. I'll tell you a bit more about the background and probable inspiration for this story afterwards, but as you listen, just know that the story is inspired by true events, and if you've heard of Body Snatchers or Resurrection Men in history, you probably already know what I'm talking about. So let's see. You know more now about the show going forward, Uh, Two Girls on a Bench, Robert Louis Stevenson, and The Body Snatcher. So, since we've covered all the bases, let's get right into this week's feature presentation. The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson Every night in the year, four of us sat in a small parlor of the George at Debenham. The Undertaker, the Landlord, and Fettis, and myself. Sometimes there would be more, but blow high, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, we four would each be planted in his own particular armchair. Fetis was an old drunken Scotchman, a man of education, obviously, and a man of some property since he lived in idleness. He had come to Debenham years ago while still young, and by a mere continuance of living, had grown to be an adopted townsman. His blue camlet cloak was a local antiquity like the church spire. His place in the parlor at the George, his absence from the church, his old, crapulous, disreputable vices were all things of course in Debenham. He had some vague, radical opinions and some fleeting infidelities, which he would now and then set forth and emphasize with tottering slaps on the table. He drank rum, five glasses regularly, every evening, and, for the greater portion of his nightly visit to the George, sat, with his glass in his right hand, in a state of melancholy, alcoholic saturation. We called him the doctor, for he was supposed to have some special knowledge of medicine, and had been known, in a pinch, to set a fracture or reduce a dislocation, but beyond these slight particulars we had no knowledge of his character and antecedents. One dark winter night—it had struck nine Some time before the landlord joined us—there was a sick man in the George— A great neighboring proprietor suddenly struck down with apoplexy on his way to Parliament, and the great man's still greater London doctor, had been telegraphed to his bedside. It was the first time that such a thing had happened in Debenham, for the railway was but newly open, and we were all proportionately moved by the occurrence. "'He's come,' said the landlord, after he had filled and lighted his pipe. "'He?' said I. "'Who? Not the doctor.' "'Himself!' replied our host. "'What is his name?' "'Dr. McFarlane,' said the landlord.' Fetis was far through his third tumblers, stupidly fuddled, now nodding over, now staring mazily around him, but at the last word he seemed to awaken, and repeated the name McFarlane twice, McFarlane. quietly enough the first time, but with sudden emotion of the second. McFarlane. Yes, said the landlord, that's his name, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. Fettis became instantly sober, his eyes awoke, his voice became clear, loud, and steady, his language forcible and earnest. We were all startled by the transformation, as if a man had risen from the dead. I beg your pardon, he said. I am afraid I have not been paying much attention to your talk. Who is this wolf, McFarlane? And then, when he had heard the landlord out, Cannot be. It cannot be, he added. And yet, I would like well to see him face to face. Do you know him, doctor? Asked the undertaker, with a gasp. God forbid, was the reply. And yet, the name is a strange one. "'It were too much to fancy, too. "'Tell me, Landort, is he old?' "'Well,' said the host, "'he's not a young man, to be sure, "'and his hair is white, but he looks younger than you. "'He is older, though. "'Years older. "'But,' with a slap upon the table, "'it's the Rome you see in my face. "'Rome and sin. "'This man, perhaps, may have an easy conscience "'and good digestion. "'Conscience, hear him speak. "'You would think I was some good old decent Christian, "'would you not? "'But no, not I.' I never canted. Voltaire might have canted if he stood in my shoes, but the brains, with a rattling fill upon his bald head, the brains were clear, inactive, and I saw and made no deductions. "'If you know this, doctor,' I ventured to remark after a somewhat awful pause, "'I should gather that you do not share the landlord's good opinion.' Fettis paid no regard to me. "'Yes,' he said with sudden decision, "'I must see him face to face.' There was another pause, and then a door was closed rather sharply on the first floor, and a step was heard upon the stair. "'That's the doctor!' cried the landlord. "'Look sharp, and you can catch him!' It was but two steps from the small parlor to the door of the old George Inn. The wide oak staircase landed almost in the street. There was room for a turkey rug and nothing more between the threshold and the last round of the descent. But this little space was every evening brilliantly lit up, not only by light upon the stair and the great signal lamp below the sign, but by the warm radiance of the barroom window. The George thus brightly advertised itself to passers-by in the cold street. Fettis walked steadily to the spot, and we, who were hanging behind, beheld the two men meet, as one of them had phrased it face to face. Dr. McFarlane was alert and vigorous. His white hair set off his pale and placid, although energetic, countenance. He was richly dressed in the finest of broadcloth and the whitest of linen, With a great gold watch chain and studs and spectacles of the same precious material he wore a broad folded tie white and speckled with lilac and he carried on his arm a comfortable driving coat of fur there was no doubt but he became his years breathing as he did of wealth and consideration and it was a surprising contrast to see our parlor sot bald dirty pimpled and robed in his old camlet cloak confront him at the bottom of the stairs mcvarden he said somewhat loudly, more like a herald than a friend. The great doctor pulled up short on the fourth step, as though the familiarity of the address surprised and somewhat shocked his dignity. "Toddy McFarlane,' repeated Fetis. The London man almost staggered. He stared for the swiftest of seconds at the man before him, glanced behind him with a sort of scare, and then in a startled whisper, "Fetis," he said. "'You!' "'Aye,' said the other. "'Me! Did you think I was dead, too?' "'You're not so easy shut of our acquaintance.' "'Hush, hush!' exclaimed the doctor. "'Hush, hush. "'This meeting is so unexpected. "'I can see you are unmanned. "'I, I hardly knew you, I confess, at first. "'But I am overjoyed, overjoyed to have this opportunity. "'For, for the present it must be, how do you do, and good-bye, and one, "'for my fly is waiting, and I must not fail the train. "'But you shall, uh, let me see, yes, you shall give me your address, "'and you can count on early news of me. "'We must do something for you, Fetis. "'I, I fear you are out at elbows.' but we must see to that auld lang syne as once we sang at suppers. "'Money!' cried Ferris, "'Money from you! The money that I had from you is lying where I cast it in the rain!' Dr. McFarlane had talked himself into some measure of superiority and confidence, but the uncommon energy of this refusal cast him back into the first confusion. A horrible, ugly look came and went across his most venerable countenance. "'My dear fellow,' he said, "'be it as you please. My last thought is to offend you.' "'I would intrude on none. I will leave you my address, however—' "'I do not wish it. I do not wish to know the roof that shelters you,' interrupted the other. "'I heard your name. I feared it might be you. I wished to know if, after all, there were a god. Now I know that there is none. Begone! He still stood in the middle of the rug, between the stair and the doorway, and the great London physician, in order to escape, would be forced to step to one side. It was plain that he hesitated before the thought of this humiliation— White as he was, there was a dangerous glitter in his spectacles, but while he still paused uncertain, he became aware that the driver of his fly was peering in from the street at this unusual scene, and caught a glimpse at the same time of our little body from the parlor, huddled by the corner of the bar. The presence of so many witnesses decided him at once to flee. He crouched together, brushing on the wainscot, and made a dart like a serpent striking for the door, but his tribulation was not yet entirely at an end. For even as he was passing, Fetis clutched him by the arm, and these words came in a whisper, and yet painfully distinct. Have you seen it again? The great rich London doctor cried out aloud with a sharp, throttling cry. (laughs) He dashed his questionnaire across the open space, and with his hands over his head, fled out of the door like a detected thief. Before it had occurred to one of us to make a movement, the fly was already rattling toward the station. The scene was over like a dream but the dream had left proofs and traces of its passage. Next day the servant found the fine gold spectacles broken on the threshold, and that very night we were all standing breathless by the bar-room window, and Fettis at our side, sober, pale, and resolute in look. "'God protect us, Mr. Fettis,' said the landlord, coming first into possession of his customary senses. "'What in the universe is all this? These strange things you have been saying!' Fettis turned toward us. He looked us each in succession in the face. "'See if you can hold your tongues,' said he. "'That man, Macfarlane, is not safe to cross. "'Those that have done so already have repented it too late.' And then, without so much as finishing his third glass, far less waiting for the other two, he bade us good-bye, and went forth, under the lamp of the hotel, into the black night. We turned to our places in the parlour, with the big red fire and four clear candles— and as we recapitulated what had passed, the first chill of our surprise soon changed into a glow of curiosity. We sat late. It was the latest session I have known in the old George. Each man, before we parted, had his theory that he was bound to prove, and none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track out the past of our condemned companion, and surprise the secret that he shared with the great London doctor. It is no great boast, but I believe I was a better hand at worming out a story than either of my fellows at the George, and perhaps there is now no other man alive who could narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. In his young days, Fetis studied medicine in the schools of Edinburgh. He had a talent of a kind, the talent that picks up swiftly what it hears and readily retails it for his own. He worked little at home, but he was civil, attentive, and intelligent in the presence of his masters. They soon picked him out as a lad who listened closely and remembered well. Nay, strange as it seemed to me when I first heard it, He was in those days well favored and pleased by his exterior. There was, at that period, a certain extramural teacher of anatomy, whom I shall designate here by the letter K. His name was subsequently too well known. The man who bore it skulked through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise, while the mob that applauded at the execution of Burke called loudly for the blood of his employer. But Mr. K. was then at the top of his vogue. He enjoyed a popularity due partly to his own talent and address, "'partly to the incapacity of his rival, the university professor. "'The students, at least, swore by his name, "'and Fetis believed himself, and was believed by others, "'to have laid the foundations of success "'when he had acquired the favor of this meteorically famous man. "'Mr. K. was a bon vivant, as well as an accomplished teacher. "'He liked a sly illusion no less than a careful preparation.' In both capacities, Fettison enjoyed and deserved his notice, and by the second year of his attendance he held the half-regular position of second demonstrator, or sub-assistant, in his class. In this capacity the charge of the theatre and the lecturerdom devolved in particular upon his shoulders. He had to answer for the cleanliness of the premises, and the conduct of the other students, and it was a part of his duty to supply, receive, and divide the various subjects. It was with a view to this last, at that time very delicate affair, that he was lodged by Mr. K., in the same wind, and at last in the same building, as the dissecting-room. Here, after a night of turbulent pleasures, his hands still tottering, his sights still misty and confused, he would be called out of bed in the black hours before the winter dawn by the unclean and desperate interlopers who supplied the table. He would open the door to these men, since infamous throughout the land. He would help them with their tragic burden, pay them their sordid price, and remain alone when they were gone." With the unfriendly relics of humanity from such a scene he would return to snatch another hour or two of slumber to repair the abuses of the night and refresh himself for the labors of the day few lads could have been more insensible to the impressions of a life thus passed among the ensigns of mortality his mind was closed against all general considerations he was incapable of interest in the fate and fortunes of another the slave of his own desires and low ambitions Cold, light, and selfish, in the last resort, he had that modicum of prudence, miscalled morality, which keeps a man from inconvenient drunkenness or punishable theft. He coveted besides a measure of consideration from his masters and his fellow pupils, and he had no desire to fail conspicuously in the external parts of life. Thus he made it his pleasure to gain some distinction in his studies, and day after day rendered unimpeachable eye-service to his employer, Mr. K., For his day of work he indemnified himself by nights of roaring, blackguardly enjoyment, and when that balance had been struck, the organ that he called his conscience declared itself content. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him as well as to his master. In that large and busy class the raw material of the anatomists kept perpetually running out, and the business thus rendered necessary was not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all who were concerned. It was the policy of Mr. K. to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade. "'They bring the body, and we pay the price,' he used to say, dwelling on the alliteration quid pro quo. And then, somewhat profanely, ask no questions,' he would tell his assistants, for conscience sake. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the crime of murder. Had that idea been broached to him in words, he would have recoiled in horror, But the lightness of his speech upon so grave a matter was, in itself, an offense against good manners, and a temptation to the men with whom he dealt. Fettus, for instance, had often remarked to himself upon the singular freshness of the bodies. He had been struck again and again by the hang-dog, abominable looks of the ruffians who came to him before dawn, and putting things together clearly in his private thoughts, he perhaps attributed a meaning too immoral and too categorical to the unguarded counsels of his master. He understood his duty in short to have three branches to take what was brought to pay the price and to avert the eye from any evidence of crime one november morning this policy of silence was put sharply to the test he had been awake all night with a racking toothache pacing his room like a caged beast or throwing himself in fury on his bed and had fallen at last into that profound uneasy slumber that so often follows a night of pain when he was awakened by the third or fourth angry repetition of the concerted signal There was a thin bright moonshine it was bitter cold windy and frosty the town had not yet awakened but an indefinable stir already preluded the noise and business of the day the ghouls had come later than usual and they seemed more than usually eager to be gone Fettus, sick with sleep, lighted them upstairs. He heard their grumbling Irish voices through a dream, and as they stripped the sack from their sad merchandise, he leaned, dozing, with his shoulder propped against the wall. He had to shake himself to find the men their money. As he did so, his eyes lighted on the dead face. He started. He took two steps nearer, with the candle raised. God Almighty, he cried. That is Jane Galbraith. The men answered nothing, but they shuffled nearer the door. I know her, I tell you he continued. She was alive and hearty yesterday. It's impossible that you could have got this body fairly. Sure, sir. You're a mistaken entirely, said one of the men. But the other looked fetish darkly in the eyes and demanded the money on the spot. It was impossible to misconceive the threat or to exaggerate the danger. The lad's heart failed him. He stammered some excuses, counted out the sum, and saw his hateful visitors depart. No sooner were they gone than he hastened to confirm his doubts. By a dozen unquestionable marks, he identified the girl he had just jested with the day before. He saw with horror marks upon her body that might well betoken violence. A panic seized him, and he took refuge in his room. There he reflected at length over the discovery he had made. Considering soberly the bearing of Mr. K.'s instructions, and the danger to himself of interference in so serious a business, and at last, in sore perplexity, determined to wait for the advice of his immediate superior— "'the class assistant. "'This was a young doctor, "'Wolf MacFarlane, "'a high favorite "'among all the reckless students, "'clever, dissipated, "'and unscrupulous "'to the last degree. "'He had traveled "'and studied abroad. "'His manners were agreeable "'and a little forward. "'He was an authority "'on the stage, skillful on the ice, "'or the links, "'with skate or golf club. "'He dressed with nice audacity, "'and to put the finishing touch "'upon his glory, "'he kept a gig "'and a strong trotting horse. "'With Fetis, "'he was on terms of intimacy.' Indeed, their relative positions called for some community of life, and when subjects were scarce, the pair would drive far into the country in MacFarlane's gig, visit and desecrate some lonely graveyard, and return before dawn with their booty to the door of the dissecting room. On that particular morning, MacFarlane arrived somewhat earlier than his wont. Fetis heard him and met him on the stairs, told him his story, and showed him the cause of his alarm. MacFarlane examined the marks on her body. Yes, he said with a nod. "'It looks fishy.' "'Well, what do I do?' said Fettis. "'Do,' repeated the other. "'Do you want to do anything? "'Least said, soonest mended, I should say.' Someone else might recognize her,' objected Fettis. "'She was as well known as the Castle Rock.' "'Well, we'll hope not,' said McFarlane. "'And if anybody does, well, you didn't, don't you see? "'And there's an end. "'The fact is, this has been going on too long. "'Stir up the mud and you'll get Kay into most unholy trouble. "'You'll be in a shocking box yourself.' So will I, if you come to that. I should like to know how any one of us would look, or what the devil we should have to say to ourselves in any Christian witness box. For me, you know, there is one thing certain, that, practically speaking, all our subjects have been murdered. McFarlane! cried Fettus. Come now, sneered the other, as if you hadn't suspected it yourself. Suspecting is one thing? And proof another, yes, I know, and I am as sorry as you are that this should have come here, tapping the body with his cane. The next best thing for me is to not recognize it, and— he added coolly, I don't. You may, if you please, I don't dictate, but I think a man of the world would do as I do, and I may add I fancy that is what Kay would look for at our hands. The question is, why did he choose us two for his assistance? And I answer, because he didn't want old wives. This was the tone of all others to affect the mind of a lad like Fetis. He agreed to imitate MacFarlane. The body of the unfortunate girl was duly dissected, and no one remarked or appeared to recognize her. One afternoon, when his day's work was over, Thetis dropped into a popular tavern and found Macfarlane sitting with a stranger. This was a small man, very pale and dark, with coal-black eyes. The cut of his features gave a promise of intellect and refinement which was but feebly realized in his manners, for he proved, upon a nearer acquaintance, coarse, vulgar, and stupid. He exercised, however, a very remarkable control over Macfarlane, issued orders like the great Bashaw, became inflamed at the least discussion or delay, and commented rudely on the servility with which he was obeyed. This most offensive person took a fancy to Fetis on the spot, plied him with drinks, and honored him with unusual confidences on his past career. If a tenth part of what he confessed were true, he was a very loathsome rogue, and the lad's vanity was tickled by the attention of so experienced a man. I'm a pretty bad fellow myself, the stranger remarked. But McFarlane is the boy. Toddy McFarlane, I call him. Toddy, order your friend another glass. Or it might be. Toddy, you jump up and shut the door. Toddy hates me, he said again. Oh, yes, Toddy, you do. Don't you call me that confounded name, growled McFarlane. Hear him. Did you ever see the lads play knife? He would like to do that all over my body, <laughs> remarked the stranger. We medicals have a better way than that, said Fettus. When we dislike a dead friend of ours, we dissect him. McFarland looked up sharply, as though this jest was scarcely to his mind. The afternoon passed. Gray, for that was the stranger's name, invited Fettus to join them at dinner, ordered a feast so sumptuous that the tavern was thrown in commotion, and when all was done, commanded McFarland to settle the bill. It was late before they separated. The man Gray was incapably drunk. McFarland sobered by his fury, chewed the cud of the money he had been forced to squander, and the slights he had been obliged to swallow. Fetis, with various liquors singing in his head, returned home with devious footsteps and a mind entirely in abeyance. Next day McFarland was absent from class, and Fetis smiled to himself as he imagined him still squiring the intolerable grey from tavern to tavern. As soon as the hour of liberty had struck, he posted from place to place in quest of his last night's companions. He could find them, however, nowhere, so returned early to his rooms, went early to bed, and slept the sleep of the just. At four in the morning he was awakened by the well-known signal. Descending to the door he was filled with astonishment to find MacFarlane with his gig, and in the gig one of those long and ghastly packages with which he was so well acquainted. "'What?' he cried. "'Have you been out alone? How did you manage?' But MacFarlane silenced him roughly, bidding him to turn to business. When they had got the body upstairs and laid it on the table, McFarlane made it first as if he were going away. Then he paused and seemed to hesitate. And then, "'You'd better look at the face,' said he, in tones of some constraint. "'You'd better,' he repeated, as Fettus only stared at him in wonder. "'But where and how did you come by it?' cried the other. "'Look at the face,' was the only answer. Fettus was staggered. Strange doubts assailed him. He looked from the young doctor to the body, and then, back again, at last, with a start, he did as he was bidden; He had almost expected the sight that met his eyes, and yet the shock was cruel to see fixed in the rigidity of death and naked on that coarse layer of sackcloth, the man whom he had left well clad and full of meat and sin upon the threshold of a tavern awoke even in the thoughtless fetus, some of the terrors of the conscience. It was a cross tibi which re-echoed in his soul that two whom he had known should have come to lie upon these icy tables. Yet these were only secondary thoughts. His first concern regarded Wolfe. Unprepared for a challenge so momentous, he knew not how to look his comrade in the face. He durst not meet his eye, and he had neither words nor voice at his command. It was Macfarlane himself who made the first advance. He came up quietly behind and laid his hand gently, but firmly, on the other's shoulder. Richardson! said he, may have the head. Now Richardson was a student who had long been anxious for that portion of the human subject to dissect. There was no answer, and the murderer resumed. Talking of business, you must pay me. Your accounts, you see, must tally. Fettis found a voice, the ghost of his own. Pay you, he cried. Pay you for that? Why, yes, of course you must. By all means, and on every possible account, You must. "'Returned the other. "'I dare not give it for nothing. "'You dare not take it for nothing. "'It would compromise us both. "'This is another case like Jane Galbraith's. "'The more things are wrong, "'the more we must act as if all were right. "'Where does old Kay keep his money?' "'There!' answered Fettus hoarsely, "'pointing to a cupboard in the corner. "'Give me the key, then,' said the other, calmly, holding out his hand. "'There was an instant's hesitation, "'and the die was cast.' Macfarlane could not suppress a nervous twitch, the infinitesimal mark of an immense relief, as he felt the key between his fingers. He opened the cupboard, brought out a pen and ink and a paper book that stood in one compartment, and separated from the funds in a drawer a sum suitable to the occasion. "'Now, look here,' he said. "'There is the payment made. First proof of your good faith. First step to your security. You now have to clinch it by a second. Enter the payment in your book.' and then you, for your part, may defy the devil. The next few seconds were for Fetis an agony of thought. But in balancing his terrors, it was the most immediate that triumphed. Any future difficulty seemed almost welcome, if he could avoid a present quarrel with Macfarlane. He set down the candle which he had been carrying all this time, and with a steady hand entered the date, the nature, and the amount of the transaction. And now, said Macfarlane, it is only fair that you should pocket the lucre, I've had my share already. By the by, when a man of the world falls into a bit of luck, he has a few shillings extra in his pocket. I'm ashamed to speak of it, but there is a rule of conduct in the case. No treating, no purchase of expensive class books, no squaring of old debts. Borrow, don't lend. McFarlane, began Fettis, still somewhat hoarsely. I've put my neck in a halter to oblige ye, To oblige me, cried Wolfe. Oh, come, you did, as near as I can see the matter, what you downright had to do in self-defense. Suppose I got into trouble, where would you be? The second little matter flows clearly from the first. Mr. Gray is the continuation of Miss Galbraith. You can't begin and then stop. If you begin, you must keep on beginning. That's the truth. No rest for the wicked. A horrible sense of blackness and the treachery of fate seized hold upon the soul of the unhappy student. Oh, he cried, but what have I done? "'And where did I begin? "'To be made a class assistant. "'In the name of reason, where's the harm in that? "'Service wanted the position. "'Service might have got it. "'Would he have been what I am now?' "'My dear fellow,' said Macfarlane, "'what a boy you are. "'What harm has come to you? "'What harm can come to you if you hold your tongue? "'Why, man, do you know what this life is?' There are two squads of us, the lions and the lambs. If you are a lamb, you come to lie upon these tables like Gray or Jane Galbraith. If you're a lion, you live and drive a horse like me, like Kay, like all the world with any wit or courage. You're staggered at the first, but look at Kay. My dear fellow, you're clever. You have pluck. I like you, and Kay likes you. You were born to lead the hunt, and I tell you on my honor and my experience of life, three days from now you'll laugh at these scarecrows like a high school boy at a farce and with that Macfarlane took his departure and drove off up the wind in his gig to get under cover before daylight. Fetis was thus left alone with his regrets. He saw the miserable peril in which he stood involved. He saw with inexpressible dismay that there was no limit to his weakness, and that, from concession to concession, he had fallen from the arbiter of Macfarlane's destiny to his paid and helpless accomplice." He would have given the world to have been a little braver at the time, but it did not occur to him that he might still be brave. The secret of Jane Galbraith and the cursed entry in the day-book closed his mouth. Hours passed. The class began to arrive. The members of the unhappy Grey were dealt out to one and to another, and received without remark. Richardson was made happy with the head, and before the hour of freedom rang, Fetis trembled with exultation to perceive how far they had already gone towards safety. For two days he continued to watch, with increasing joy, the dreadful process of disguise. On the third day MacFarlane made his appearance. He had been ill, he said, but he made up for lost time by the energy with which he directed the students. To Richardson in particular he extended the most valuable assistance and advice, and that student, encouraged by the praise of the demonstrator, burned high with ambitious hopes, and saw the medal already in his grasp. Before the week was out McFarlane's prophecy had been fulfilled— Fetis had outlived his terrors and had forgotten his baseness. He began to plume himself upon his courage, and had so arranged the story in his mind that he could look back on these events with an unhealthy pride. Of his accomplice he saw but little. They met, of course, in the business of the class. They received their orders together from Mr. K. At times they had a word or two in private, and MacFarlane was from first to last particularly kind and jovial, but it was plain that he avoided any reference to their common secret. And even when Fetis whispered to him that he had cast his lot with the lions and forsworn the lambs, he only signed to him smilingly to hold his peace. At length an occasion arose which threw the pair once more into a closer union. Mr. K. was again short of subjects. Pupils were eager, and it was part of this teacher's pretensions to always be well supplied. At the same time there came the news of a burial in the rustic graveyard of Glencourse. Time has little changed the place in question. It stood then, as now, upon a cross-road out of call of human habitations, and buried fathoms deep in the foliage of six cedar trees. The cries of the sheep upon the neighboring hills, the streamlets upon either hand, one loudly singing among the pebbles, the other dripping furtively from pond to pond, the stir of the wind in the mountainous old flowering chestnuts, and once in seven days the voice of the bell and the old tunes of the precentor were the only sounds that disturbed the silence around the rural church. The Resurrection Man, to use a by-name of the period, was not to be deterred by any of the sanctities of customary piety. It was part of his trade to despise and desecrate the scrolls and trumpets of old tombs, the paths worn by the feet of worshippers and mourners, and the offerings and the inscriptions of bereaved affection. To rustic neighborhoods where love is more commonly tenacious, and where some bonds of blood or fellowship unite the entire society of a parish, the body-snatcher, far from being repelled by natural respect, was attracted by the ease and safety of the task. To bodies that had been laid in earth, in joyful expectation of a far different awakening, there came that hasty, lamp-lit, terror-haunted resurrection of the spade and mattock. The coffin was forced, the cerements torn, and the melancholy relics clad in sackcloth, after being rattled for hours on moonless byways, were at length reposed, to uttermost indignities, before a class of gaping boys." Somewhat as two vultures may swoop upon a dying lamb, Fetis and MacFarlane were to be let loose upon a grave in that green and quiet resting place. The wife of a farmer, a woman who had lived for sixty years and been known for nothing but good butter and a godly conversation, was to be rooted from her grave at midnight and carried, dead and naked, to that far away city that she had always honored with her Sunday's best. The place beside her family was to be empty till the crack of doom, her innocent and most venerable members to be exposed that last curiosity of the anatomist late one afternoon the pair set forth well wrapped in cloaks and furnished with a formidable bottle it rained without remission a cold dense lashing rain now and again there blew a puff of wind but these sheets of falling water kept it down bottle and all it was a sad and silent drive as far as pentecuit where they were to spend the evening they stopped once to hide their implements in a thick bush not far from the churchyard and once again at the fishers' tryst, to have a toast before the kitchen fire, and vary their nips of whiskey with a glass of ale. When they reached their journey's end, the gig was housed, the horse fed and comforted, and the two doctors in a private room sat down to the best dinner and best wine the house afforded. The lights, the fire, the beating rain upon the window, the cold, incongruous work that lay before them, added zest to their enjoyment of the meal. With every glass their cordiality increased, Soon McFarlane handed a little pile of gold to his companion. "'A compliment,' he said. "'Between friends, these little damned accommodations ought to fly like pipe-lights.' Fettis pocketed the money and applauded the sentiment to the echo. "'You're a philosopher,' he cried. "'I was an ass till I knew you—you and Kay—between you by the Lord, Harry. But you'll make a man of me.' "'Of course we shall,' applauded McFarlane. "'A man, I tell you, it required a man to back me up the other morning—' There are some big, brawling, forty-year-old cowards who would have turned sick at the look of the damned thing. But not you. You kept your head. I watched you. Well, and why not? Fettis thus vaunted himself. It was no affair of mine. There was nothing to gain on the other side but disturbance. And on the other, I could count on your gratitude. Don't you see? And he slapped his pocket till the gold pieces rang. mcfarland somehow felt a certain touch of alarm at these unpleasant words. He may have regretted that he had taught his young companion so successfully, but he had no time to interfere, for the other noisily continued in his boastful strain. "'The great thing is not to be afraid. Now between you and me, I don't want to hang. That's practical. But for all cant, McFarlane, I was born with a contempt. Hell, God, devil, right, wrong, sin, crime, and all the old gallery of curiosities, they may frighten boys, but men of the world, like you and me, despise them.' "'Here is to the memory of Grey. "'It was by this time growing somewhat late. "'The gig, according to order, was brought round to the door "'with both lamps brightly shining, "'and the young men had to pay their bill and take the road. "'They announced that they were bound for Peebles "'and drove in that direction till they were clear of the last houses of the town, "'then, extinguishing the lamps, returned upon their course "'and followed a by-road toward Glencourse. "'There was no sound but that of their own passage.' And the incessant striding pouring of the rain it was pitch dark here and there a white gate or a white stone in the wall guided them for a short space across the night but for the most part it was at a foot pace and almost groping that they picked their way through the resonant blackness of their solemn and isolated destination in the sunken woods that traversed the neighborhood of the burying ground the last glimmer failed them and it became necessary to kindle a match and re one of the lanterns of the gig Thus, under the dripping trees, and environed by huge and moving shadows, they reached the scene of their unhallowed labors. They were both experienced in such affairs, and powerful with the spade, and they had scarce been twenty minutes at their task before they were rewarded by a dull rattle on the coffin lid. At that same moment MacFarlane, having hurt his hand upon a stone, flung it carelessly above his head. The grave in which they now stood almost to the shoulders was close to the edge of the plateau of the graveyard and the gig lamp had been propped, the better to illuminate their labors, against a tree, and on the immediate verge of the steep bank descending to the stream. Chance had taken a sure aim with the stone. Then came a clang of broken glass, night fell upon them, sounds, alternately dull and ringing, announced the bounding of the lantern down the bank, in its occasional collision with the trees. A stone or two, which it had dislodged in its descent, rattled behind it into the profundities of the glen and then silence like night resumed its sway and they might bend their hearing to its utmost pitch but naught was to be heard except the rain now marching to the wind now steadily falling over miles of open country they were so nearly at an end of their abhorred task that they judged it wisest to complete it in the dark the coffin was exhumed and broken open the body inserted in the dripping sack and carried between them to the gig. One mounted to keep it in its place, and the other, taking the horse by the mouth, groped along the wall and bush until they reached the wider road by the fisher's tryst. Here was a faint, diffused radiancy, which they hailed like daylight, by that they pushed the horse to a good place and began to rattle along merrily in the direction of town. They had both been wedded to the skin during their operations, and now, as the gig jumped among the deep ruts, the thing that stood propped between them fell now upon one and now upon the other. At every repetition of the horrid contact, each instinctively repelled it with a greater haste, and the process, natural although it was, began to tell upon the nerves of the companions. MacFarlane made some ill-favored jest about the farmer's wife, but it came hollowly from his lips, and was allowed to drop in silence. Still their unnatural burden bumped from side to side, and now the head would be laid as if in confidence upon their shoulders, and now the drenching sackcloth would flap icily about their faces. A creeping chill began to possess the soul of Fetis. He peered at the bundle, and it seemed somehow larger than the first. All over the countryside, and from every degree of distance, the farm dogs accompanied their passage with tragic ululations, and it grew and grew upon his mind that some unnatural miracle had been accomplished, that some nameless change had befallen the dead body and that it was in fear of their unholy burden that the dogs were howling. For heaven's sake, said he, making a great effort to arrive at speech. For heaven's sake, let's have a light. Seemingly, MacFarlane was affected in the same direction, for though he made no reply, he stopped the horse, passed the reins to his companion, got down, and proceeded to kindle the remaining lamp. They had by that time got no farther than the crossroad down to Alconclinney, The rain still poured as though the deluge were returning, and it was no easy matter to make a light in such a world of wet and darkness. When at last the flickering blue flame had been transferred to the wick and began to expand and clarify and shed a wide circle of misty brightness round the gig, it became possible for the two young men to see each other and the thing they had along with them. The rain had molded the rough sacking to the outlines of the body underneath. The head was distinct from the trunk, the shoulders plainly modelled, Something at once spectral and human riveted their eyes upon the ghastly comrade of their drive. For some time Macfarlane stood motionless, holding up the lamp. A nameless dread was swathed, like a wet sheet about the body, and tightened the white skin upon the face of fettis. A fear that was meaningless, but a horror of what could not be, kept mounting to his brain. Another beat of the watch, and he had spoken, but his comrade forestalled him. That is not a woman," said MacFarlane in a hushed voice. "It was a woman when we put her in," whispered Fetis. "Hold that lamp," said the other. "I must see her face." And as Fetis took the lamp, his companion untied the fastenings of the sack and drew down the cover from the head. The light fell very clear upon the dark well-molded features and smooth-shaven cheeks of a too-familiar countenance often beheld in dreams of both these young men. A wild yell rang up into the night. Each leaped from his own side into the roadway. The lamp fell, broke, and was extinguished. And the horse, terrified by this unusual commotion, bounded and went off toward Edinburgh at a gallop, bearing along with it sole occupant of the gig, the body of the dead and long-dissected gray. If you enjoy stories of your and yours and you want to help out the show, there are a few ways to do it. The easiest way is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That gives the show more visibility and helps it in the Apple Podcasts algorithm. Of course, if you leave a review, I'll read it and produce it here on the show, the same way I do with the stories. But you're already doing the most important thing you can do, and that's listening. Thanks for listening. You know, usually at the end of these stories, I try to have some semi-clever one-liner or a moral or something like that, And this week I was going to say something about how people are dying to get into anatomy class, but eh, that's a little bit too corny even for me. So I mentioned before the story that there was more I wanted to tell you regarding the inspiration for The Body Snatcher. There are certainly a few specific details taken from actual events. You'll note that the instructor of the anatomy class wasn't named, and they only referred to him as Dr. K. Well, as it happens, That first letter of a name is based on a real anatomist who infamously accepted ill-gotten bodies from a pair of fellows named William Burke and William Hare. There's lots out there about the Burke and Hare murders, so I'm not going to go into very deep detail. I know Lorde did a podcast episode about them, and I'm pretty sure Stuff You Missed in History Class did one too. I was trying to think of any indie shows that have done one, but I came up empty on that one. Anyway, the anatomist in question was Robert Knox, who taught anatomy, among other things, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Another detail that made it into the story, of course, which made it easier because it's a local story. Knox preferred to perform dissection on a human corpse for every one of his instruction periods, and as such he was often short of actual subjects upon whom he could perform said dissection. And so he would accept corpses from grave robbers, no questions asked. Had he asked questions of Williams, Burke, and Hare, he may have found that the pair rather than robbing graves, had been, shall we say, going about things in a different way. It is believed that the two committed up to sixteen murders over a period of about ten months in 1828, selling the bodies to Dr. Knox. When they were caught, Mr. Hare turned King's evidence and testified against Burke, who was found guilty of three murders, hanged, and then, you guessed it, publicly dissected. For his part, Hare served some time in jail, and when he was released and brought to Dumfries, Scotland in disguise, word got out that he was in town, and it basically caused a bit of a mini riot. So, he was snuck out of Dumfries and told to head for the English border. At that point, he essentially disappeared and was never heard from again. Knox, for his part, was basically ruined after the dealings with the body snatchers. Oh, and one more thing it was a couple of lodgers who discovered the final victim of Burke and Hare and reported them to the police. The surname of that couple? Gray. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now, next time you hear from me, I'll be bringing you yet another story from an author I have not yet featured here. If you're familiar with The Maltese Falcon, though, you'll want to stay tuned for that one. Or, really, even if you're not familiar, I think you'll enjoy it. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. See you next time. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcastgmail.com. At